Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 39. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word for us. Hey, I want you to revisit with me uh, uh, what is <clears throat> what I think a very common experience for, uh, for us. And it was that experience that you learned in a high school lunchroom. You know what I'm talking about? Where you sort of walk out, you go through, you get your tray and you have your lunch and you walk out and you see the lunchroom in front of you and suddenly you start to scan the room. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Where are my friends? You get this little pit in your stomach of what happens if I end up at the wrong table or worse, by myself. You got to relive that when you came to RUF, you know, you sort of come waltzing in and you only know really one person your freshman year and suddenly you realize horror of horrors. You've gotten here before they're here and you're just like, okay, I don't know anybody in this room. There's that pit that sort of comes in your stomach. And then it kind of got worse though, didn't it? I mean, imagine that you're dating somebody. Let's say, gentlemen, that you've got a girlfriend and you walk into a party and you look across the room and there your girlfriend is and she's sort of talking uh, with another guy friend of hers across the room. Hmm. And there's a little pit that sort of forms in your stomach and you wonder what's going on. Or maybe if it's not that dramatic, it could even be, let's say, for instance, you come home one Sunday afternoon after church and your best friend is uh, sitting in your apartment with uh, some new friends of theirs. And they're talking about how awesome it was, uh, the place that they went to the night before without you. And there's that pit that forms in the stomach. What is that thing? Am I the only one here? I, I, I would suggest to you that it would be hard for you to overestimate or to overstate just how much of your everyday uh, experiences in life, your everyday actions are motivated by insecurity. By wondering where I stand with people, that feeling that at any moment the rug of my life could get yanked out from under me and I'm basically going to be left sort of by myself. 
In my opinion, this sort of helps us understand the alcohol issue here at Old Miss. You've heard me say this before. I love you, but you drink too much. And in my opinion, alcohol's unique effects to be able to lower inhibitions sort of tells me that when I'm unable to sort of be out, out, uh, without alcohol, does that not suggest that the rest of the time I really struggle with being severely inhibited? See what I'm saying? Look, I, I think that you're naive if you don't admit to yourself that insecurities are driving almost every decision, good or bad, that we tend to make when we're in college. And all I simply want to pitch to you is, don't you ever wish to yourself that you could have more confidence? Don't you ever sort of think to yourself, I really don't want to be this way. I wish that I could be the kind of person who knew so securely who they were that they could march into any kind of social situation with poise and, and, and with, with, with confidence. You know, you look at sort of the, uh, uh, the confession that Paul gives to us at the end of chapter 8 with this amazing statement of confidence. How in the world did he get that? And we've been looking this entire semester at how it is that we try to combat our, our generalized boredom with Christianity, with these fundamental truths, and how these truths push us out of the mundane. But I would say that you would be very hard-pressed to find a more confident statement of personal identity than what you got from the Apostle Paul just now. I mean, how did he get there? <laughs> And how can I get there? Is that something that's available to your average Christian? I think Paul wants you to know, yes. Yes. <laughs> there are beauties that are on the other side of the gospel that adorn a convinced life. And the way that he wants us to, to see life. In order to see that though, I think he gives us three things. Three things for us to embrace and to understand and to adopt that might allow us to live this convinced life. We first of all need to see God's sovereignty. We secondly need to see God's efficiency. And then thirdly, we need to see God's adequacy. His sovereignty, his efficiency, and then his adequacy. Okay, first point. Paul talks about the center of this confidence that I have in life comes from the fact that God is in absolute control of everything. Uh, look, Romans 8.28 is kind of one of those famous ones, right? Uh, one of the most oft-quoted verses in the entire Bible. And to be honest with you, the claim is fairly straightforward because he says, for those people who love God and are called by him, everything in your life, even, dare I say, especially the bad things in your life, are eventually going to end up being a good thing. The central claim of God's sovereignty is that all of the cruddy stuff in your life is eventually going to end up being wonderful stuff. Now, look, that's a pretty amazing thing, and there's a, there's a lot that we need to unpack here. So bear with me for a second. First idea behind this idea of God's sovereignty is please make sure that you notice the qualifier. In other words, the blessing of bad things turning into good things is restricted to those who love God. Now, I don't think that this verse... It ought to be used in the way in which it typically is used. Like it's sort of this, um, I don't know, uh, Christian uh, Peter Pan motivational happy thought. You know, all things work together for those who are called uh, by God, right? Uh, and by the way, that's a bad verse to quote to people who are in the fresh uh, grips of real pain. Uh, sometimes they can be very cruel to not allow people to hurt in the way in which they should. 
But it's also important to realize that what Paul is not saying is that there's somehow this hoop that you're supposed to jump through in order for life to work out good. That's not what he's saying. It's not loving God equals life working out well. What he's saying is, is it's the natural result of those who are called by God. Those who are called by God learn to love God. And that's the description of the person who can say with confidence that all of my bad will always turn good. That's the first thought. The second thought behind this is this. you got to be careful to see what Paul is not saying here. Look, the words for the good, that all things will work out for the good, don't mean that life just kind of works out for people who are Christians. Um, Because what that would imply is, is that basically this verse is, you know, things just sort of end up being good. There's like this rainbow at the very end of, of my exam period because I prayed about it. That's not what Paul is saying because he qualifies what the good is. Because he goes on to say that the good he's talking about has to do with your holiness. Look at verse 29. In verse 29 he says that the reason that God foreknew and predestined you is so that you can be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good he's talking about. Look, for most of us when we face difficult issues in life and we start to pray about it, We tend to typically want for God to simply change my circumstances. You know what I'm saying? In other words, we're like, oh, Lord, could you please just give me back my boyfriend or girlfriend that just broke up with me? You know, Lord, could you just make me, you know, prettier? Uh, Lord, could you give me a good grade on this test? You know, Lord, could you just give me that sweet job in Nashville? That's not the good that Paul's talking about. God is saying the good is the good of you ending up your life happy and holy and with God. That's very important. The good is not like a generalized good um, because we can't associate uh, a, a godly life with an easy life. That's not what Paul is saying is. The good is ultimately you being conformed to the image of his son. That's what he means. Okay, so those are the qualifiers, if you will. But then you get to the real meat of it. What he is saying is that it is God's practice. This is a big deal. It is God's practice to take your pain, even your heartache, to take your loneliness, to take your utter confusion, to take your your deepest regrets, and he's not going to come in and erase them as if you suddenly have amnesia. He's not going to come in and deny them. You know, let's just act like it never happened. Nor is he going to come in and make you pay for them. You know, as if your problems that you have now are his retribution for your lack of obedience. That's not what God does to your suffering, Paul says. Paul says, God is going to do with your suffering. Listen to this. This is the big big point. God is going to do with your suffering what he did with his son on the cross. I love to ask this question to you every now and then in some of our small groups. Okay, if the Bible is true... And Jesus was the son of God. When he died on the cross, is that the worst thing that ever happened? Or is that the best thing that ever happened? You realize how hard it is to answer that question? Imagine you could be with the disciples, you know, just days after the cross. There was no way that those guys weren't saying, okay, this is a total catastrophe. Everything that we had pinned our hopes on this man suddenly failed. We believed he was the son of God. And he died on a cross. I mean, what that had to do to their understanding. But here's the strange thing. You know, 
at that very moment of deepest despair, they suddenly find out that, lo and behold, God was doing something more wonderful than the world could imagine. Now, you've got to grasp how weird that is because it's the same moment, the same action, the same experience was at the same time the worst thing that could ever have happened. Imagine that you were there. The Son of God is dead. That's a bad thing. (laughs) And yet, we now look and say, the Son of God is dead. That's the most wonderful thing that ever could happen. Listen to me. This, in my opinion, is one of the central things that makes Christianity different from any other world religion. No other world religion comes close to this view of suffering. And there's a great example of it in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 50. There is a Jewish-born Egyptian prince by the name of Joseph who looks down at his brothers who betrayed him and sold him into slavery when he was uh, younger and less powerful. And he looks at his brothers who were his very betrayers and who did a horrible thing to him. He ended up in prison in Egypt, for goodness sakes, and going through loads of suffering at their hand. And you know what he says to them in Genesis chapter 50, verse 19 and 20? He says, listen, what you intended for evil, listen, listen, God intended for good. Let that sink in for just a second, because that's weird. (laughs) The raw power of that statement will really mess you up if you think about it long enough. The same act, same event, completely different intentions. See? The brothers were intending to do evil, but at the same time they were intending to do evil, God was intending to do good. If this isn't freaking you out, then you're not paying attention. (laughs) Because that is freakish. How can God do that? And for a lot of you right now, there are these philosophical questions that are sort of bubbling up to the surface, and you're kind of going, whoa, 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 whoa. Now, before you go there and freak out about that, I I don't want you to do that and let the philosophical question suddenly cloud this remedy to an insecure life. Don't short-circuit the process. Because what it means is, is if right now you are saying to yourself, I cannot possibly see how God is going to bring any good out of this. (laughs) I cannot possibly understand a way through this that will ever be something that he could smile upon. Paul looks and says, take comfort in knowing that God is the kind of God who takes those circumstances, even the ones that had evil intentions on your part. In other words, even the things that even you intended for evil. He's about the business of taking that kind of junk that even comes from your heart and turning it into good things, into the ultimate good thing of being happy and holy with him. Look, even on a human level, I'm old enough now to say that there are some eras of my life, some periods of my life, college was one of them, that I would not go back and relive for all the money in the world. But you know what's weird about it? Is that I also wouldn't trade them for the world because of what they taught me. Y'all, if that's true on a human level, how much more will God make that true? Look, folks, if you take this in, if you take God's sovereignty in, it starts to erode your insecurity. All of the bad will turn good. It's one of my favorite scenes from The Lord of the Rings in the third book 
where finally, after all of their adventures, here sits Samwise Ganges, back in the fields of Athelion, having thought that he was a dead man on the, in the fires of the Mount Mordor, or Mount Doom in Mordor. And suddenly he opens his eyes and he sees someone who he thought was dead. He sees Gandalf. He says, Gandalf, is it you? Can it really be you? I mean, will everything bad turn untrue? The central Christian claim Paul is saying is, yes, that's exactly what's going to happen. Everything bad will turn untrue because God is sovereignly working them all, even the stuff that you mess up. It's good news. Secondly, though, it's not just God's sovereignty. It's also God's efficiency, his efficiency. Look, verses 29 through 30 are one of the very first recorded uh, what we call orders of salvation. It sort of sets in order uh, uh, where our salvation began and where it's going to end. In other words, he talks about the various things that happen to us and in us in our salvation. And if you look close at it, you'll see some pretty astounding things. The first thing Paul says is that your salvation was thought about, brace yourselves, (laughs) even before you thought about it. Because he says, for those whom he foreknew, underline that word. It's a very interesting word. And there's a lot of people that make a mistake about that word because they think that it simply means that God was aware of you. That he had sort of cognitive awareness of you sort of out through the corridors of time, as it were. But look, that word knowing to foreknow someone is much stronger in the Bible. Because in the Bible, to know something is much more than just an intellectual awareness. But it's deeply personal. So deeply personal that there's places in the Old Testament where the word to know is actually used as a synonym for sex. (laughs) Um, uh, you, You know, and Adam went and knew his wife Eve. That means they had sex. <laughs> Such a deep personal knowing. In other words, what, God, what Paul is saying is here is that God was not just aware of you before you were born. That is, he set his love on you before you were born. In other words, he determined to love you even before anything else was created. Wow. <laughs> and then he looks and says, in addition to foreknowing you, he also predestined you. Yeah, the word is really in the Bible. Bear with me for your brain explodes. But it's a fairly easy translation. It means that God set a destination for you beforehand so that you would be conformed to his likeness. Now, again, (laughs) before you get all bent out of shape out of this and start loading up philosophical questions, I simply want you to notice the sweetness in this thing. Look, I want you to look inside your heart tonight and think about this. Doesn't every single one of us in this room long for a love that is its own rationale? You know what I mean by that? Don't we all wish that someone would love us not because we did something or because we looked like something or because we acted in some way? Because if that's the case, our love is earned. And if it's earned, it can be unearned. And that's not security. I have a campus minister friend of mine who was speaking to his 10-year-old adopted child who had just recently begun to wrestle with this idea of being adopted. Some of you may relate to this because you come from adopted families. You yourself might be adopted. 
And this, his 10-year-old child was looking up at his father and, and upset about the fact that his other brothers and sisters, you know, were the real kids of the family. And my friend, I thought very wisely, looked at his child and said, look, when, you know, we had children, you know, from mommy, your mommy and I actually had to settle with what we got. But we actually got to walk through a room and choose you from actually hundreds of other children we could have adopted. <laughs> kind of funny. Suddenly, all of the questions stopped. Why? Because all of a sudden he knew that he was loved for no other reason than that he was loved. The love was its own justification. In other words, that little kid at that moment knew, here it comes, that he was secure. That's the word. Because this place in his family wasn't there because of his performance but was because of his parents' graciousness. My friends, that's what's behind the doctrine of God's foreknowledge and predestination. Now, the second thing, though, that Paul says in that same sort of vein of God's efficiency is that you were called, you were justified, and you were glorified. Now, for some of you that are more astute than others, you might have noticed that that sort of read a little weird. In other words, you expect it to read, we're called and we're justified and will be glorified. Because glorification is that which happens in heaven when God like finishes the whole deal, right? Right? But that's not what he says. <laughs> Every commentator notices the tense of that word glorified. Paul is saying you were called, you were justified, and you were glorified. And it's almost like they're looking around saying, uh, no, we weren't. <laughs> that hadn't happened. But listen to Paul's thinking here, y'all. What he's saying is your future is so certain that Paul can speak of it as if it already happened. Look, y'all, God has said, I am showing the ultimate in efficiency when I save you. I didn't and I won't, he says, leave anything undone. Your future is certain. In Christ, he says. You know, <clears throat> I think about this a lot, maybe too much. But there are times, it's probably because I have to deal uh, with, um, I get to deal, didn't sound right. I get to deal with your problems as college students. Um, <laughs> and I look back on my own college experience, which was less than happy. And I look back on some of the idiotic decisions that I made when I was in college especially in the realm of relationships. And some of you have been bored to death by my whole dating thing, and I'm not going there now. But I am oftentimes grieved and embarrassed afresh by some of the stupid things I did. And here's the funny thing. I remember thinking after I got married, after I had suckered this poor woman into marrying me, I remember thinking to myself, you know, if I would have known that Ginger was coming... I would have made a whole lot of other decisions. And sometimes when I'm talking to you, you look at me kind of like, well, I mean, of course, Les, it worked out for you. You got the greatest woman in the world. And you're right about that. You're right about that. If I would have known that Ginger was coming, it would have totally changed the way that I dealt with college. It really would have. I wouldn't have been near as insecure. I wouldn't have been near as needy. I wouldn't have been near as panic-stricken. And I probably wouldn't have made any, near as many stupid decisions that I made in reacting to that insecurity. Now, here's the deal. Don't miss this. 
Because God says, though you can't know those kinds of things, I'm going to let you see the end. And when you see what I've got in store for you, it's totally going to relativize and totally going to neutralize your present pain. I have garnered an efficiency in dealing with your salvation. It is so certain I can talk about the future as if it's already done. Folks, take that in and it'll begin to eat at and erode your insecurity. Thirdly and finally, Paul says it's not only God's sovereignty, it's not only his efficiency, but thirdly, he says, notice God's adequacy. In other words, his adequacy is basically saying that everything that is going on with you now, no matter where you find yourself in life, your life is always going to get better. <laughs> Look, y'all, verses 31 to 35 in Romans 8, basically Paul is starting to, he's starting to gush. He's getting a little out of control here. And what he does is he throws out five questions Five questions that get five answers that are the basis of our confidence. Now, and guess what? No surprise. They all have to do with God and not him. Note to self. Write that down. Listen to what he says. These are beautiful. First thing he says is he says, look at God's power. If God is for us, who can be against us? (laughs) In other words, if God is on your side, you always carry the bigger stick. Always. The odds are always in your favor. Second, he looks to God's generosity. He's like, look, if he gave us his son, if he gave us his son for goodness sakes, how will he not also freely give you everything? Look, look, this one's worth camping out on for a second. I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine that you've got a very, very good friend who loves you so much, they just think you're the greatest person in the world, that upon your graduation, they present you with the keys to a condo on the square that they've bought for you. Ta-da! Good friend. Wealthy friend, right? Hands you the keys to this condo. It's yours. I want you to have it. And I want you to imagine that your friend has a conversation with the realtor, right? And the realtor, since they've done this big deal, looks at your friend and says, you know, it's a great gift to give to your friend. That's really amazing. Why don't you let me put like a, like a big bow or something on the front door so you can kind of surprise them with it? Kind of a cute little, you know, for me to use sort of thing. And then your friend looks at the realtor and says, hmm, a bow. How much does that cost? And he's like, uh, I don't know, like $5 or so. What would you say if your friend was like, oh, $5, outrageous, I won't pay it. You would say, okay, that's, that's absurd. <laughs> like the gift of the condo is so giant Why would you not also want to do the little comparatively small thing? God is saying, I gave you my son. Do you honestly think that I'm being withholding? Do you honestly think that there's something out there that I'm sitting back and I'm holding back over here and thinking, well, we'll see if you're holy enough. Look, y'all, Paul's reasoning says God is generous. He's effusive. Thirdly, he looks to God's pardon. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Oh, that's huge. Who's going to bring a charge against you? Look, y'all, there is no guarantee. I would even say there's going to be plenty of guarantee that your Christian life is not going to have a whole lot of moments where you feel utterly chargeable. You know what I'm talking about? 
Where you begin to look at a semester and you're like, this is not what I wanted to do. This is not what I wanted to be. We feel chargeable. We feel like there's a charge against us, that there's still something between us, that there's still sort of a a distance between the two of us. And Paul looks and goes, who's going to bring a charge (laughs) against God's doing this? Which all of a sudden makes him fourthly look at Christ's work. He's looking and saying, listen, would you just look at what God has done in Jesus? Jesus died and was raised and intercedes. Man, that's a good reminder. Well, you want to rehearse something in your mind? Okay, where is home base? Where is spiritual and mental home base after the wanderings that I've done this semester? Jesus died. Jesus was raised. Jesus intercedes. It's home base for Paul. It's a place for him of comfort. And then finally, he finishes with Christ's love. (laughs) Look at this love. It's bigger and wider and deeper and more patient and more lovely and more ability and more able to sort of deal with your tiny little neuroses than you could ever imagine. It is absolutely a love that will not let you go. Wow. Five nuclear strength truths. And Paul looks and says, look, if you've got that much going for you, then no matter what's going on in your life, it's always going to get better. It's always going to get better. And that doesn't end in this life. I was reminded this last week of the last paragraph in C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles. In the book, The Last Battle. You ever read The Last Battle? The very last paragraph, Lewis basically says this. He says, and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were at the beginning of chapter one of the great story, which no one earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter, listen, is better than the one before. Look, y'all, that's your destiny. If you know Jesus. And the purpose of these questions that Paul lists for us (laughs) is to beat the insecurity out of me. He's saying, look, think. Are you afraid? Then you're not thinking. Are you worried? You're not thinking. Are you feeling guilty? You're not thinking. Look, y'all, these are... (laughs) Romans chapter 8 is not dry Christian doctrine. This is describing last night for you and for me. It's describing this afternoon. It's the very truth that God lays a foundation in the life of a person that basically starts to break up our boredom with Christianity. And instead of leading us with a sort of cowering sense of duty, pushes us on to beauty and the beauty of self-sacrifice that we'll talk about next week as we finish Romans. But leave yourself with that question. Do I have that kind of confidence? Better yet, can I even imagine that kind of confidence? Because if you're mulling over it, it very well may be the Holy Spirit working in you to see that it really is true in Christ and to make you want it. Go get it. Go find it. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you give us the grace to be able to see the beauty, to see Paul all caught up, sort of enraptured in, in the idea of your graciousness, 
caught up in the idea that you have made him more secure than we could ever dare dream of being. Lord Jesus, some of us are remembering things that we even did today, which were a result of a petty insecurity. And we're now realizing that it's because the gospel has not worked on us that we're feeling the way in which we are. And so perhaps, Lord, if you would come and visit the soul of the person who is living in fear even tonight, would you visit them with grace and with goodness and with reassurance and this beautiful doctrine so that in the end we can look and say that you've worked in us a confidence, a convinced life that changes everything that we do and everything that we see. Would you do that? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.